This is Get Wired. I'm Angela Watercutter, senior editor at Wired, filling in for Lauren Good. During his 2016 presidential run, Donald Trump amassed a great deal of support from a growing faction we now know as the alt-right. Many have remained loyal to this day and often show support by spreading conspiracy theories or, at worst, inciting violence. But before this group rallied around Trump, they rallied around someone, something entirely different. A small, simply drawn cartoon frog. Many of you may remember Pepe the Frog, the once innocent, chill frog dude co-opted by far-right extremists and transformed into an alt-right mascot. Pepe the Frog has been added to the Anti-Defamation League's database of hate symbols. A cartoon frog died on the internet a few days ago. His name was Pepe. Pepe the Frog. He started as a drawing that became a meme and found a home on the free-for-all message board known as 4chan. But he quickly morphed into a mascot for neo-Nazis in the lead-up to the 2016 election. And if you know about Pepe, you probably think of him that way, a symbol of online trolling. But the character actually originates from a little-known webcomic called Boys Club that featured a very different cartoon frog. That Pepe was a gentle slacker party animal. So how did Pepe undergo such a huge transformation? Pepe became a meme. I didn't even know what a meme was. There were all these boys trying to own each other on the message boards. In drops Pepe, right for the taking. A new documentary called Feels Good Man follows the memification of Pepe and the efforts of Pepe's creator, Matt Fury, to reclaim his beloved character. On this episode of Get Wired, I talked to filmmakers Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini about their award-winning film, The Magic of Memes and the Future of Pepe the Frog. So Feels Good Man is about Pepe, but it's also about his creator, who I think most people had no idea about. So who is Matt Fury? I, you know, I would describe Matt as a real pacifist. He's a sensitive guy. He's a sweet guy. He has a great sense of humor. Um, he's someone who's most at home drawing monsters in his garage. I've just always been into drawing. And it takes tons of time to come up with a character that you like enough to draw over and over again. He's a dedicated family man. Um, he's someone that really does kind of believe in the goodness of everyone, you know. I think what immediately made him such a compelling kind of hero for for us and what, why we thought audiences might relate to him is that I think there is a struggle that he is experiencing that I think a lot of us also share, like this feeling that we were caught off guard maybe in 2016 or feel like that consensus reality had been taken from us a bit. There was a problem before us and that it was no longer possible to just kind of stay on the sidelines, that there are conditions in society right now that demand that we get up off the proverbial couch and really uh, take on, head on, and that it's not, it's no longer feasible to just kind of be a passive observer of things. Mm -hmm. And that's the journey of Matt that we were able to capture, thankfully. Yeah, you know, Matt drew Pepe when he was in his mid-20s and he was working at a thrift store in the San Francisco Mission. And Pepe the Frog was um, very similar to Matt and his friends who all sort of had these like day jobs they didn't necessarily care too much about, but their coworkers were their friends and they'd go to the bar afterwards and they would like hang out. And so Pepe is um, this sort of wonderful character that's kind of like your 20-something id. 
A lot of the humor is kind of about post-college zone. You don't quite know what you're doing, but you like drinking and hanging out. The four characters were just reflections of my personality and the personality of my friends. Landwolf, the party dog. Andy was the jokester of the group. Brett liked to dance. And then Pepe the Frog was just kind of like the little brother of the group. Um, it's like sweet. He parties a little bit too hard, but really kind of like loves his friends. And so, yeah, I think that's um, Matt in, in somewhat of a nutshell. So, um, you know, I think he has that kind of like San Francisco um, ethos that's very live and let live, but also a little bit wild and freaky and out of control sometimes, too. Well, let's talk a little bit about the journey that Pepe the Frog went from from Boys Club onward. You know, Boys Club was the original comic that Pepe appeared in, but it's a long, twisty story before we get to the Pepe that we know today. Um, can you trace the journey from Boys Club to 4chan to Trump and how you laid that all out in the documentary? It's funny. The, the Pepe became a meme from very unlikely circumstances. There's a single page in Boys Club number two. It's a six-panel comic, and in this comic... Pepe is peeing with his pants pulled all the way down around his ankles. So his pants are sitting on the bathroom floor. And one of his roommates walks in and interrupts this. And afterwards, um, one of the other roommates asks him, why do you pee with your pants pulled all the way down around your ankles? And Pepe says, feels good, man. I remember when I was in second grade and I went to the bathroom alongside my cousin David. And he pulled his pants all the way down to go pee, underwear and everything. Seems like it would feel really good. So I wanted to make a comic about that. Feels good, man. And this one image of Pepe saying, feels good, man, um, somehow jumped off of this very obscure comic book page and into the zeitgeist in a very kind of twisty, turny, um, idiosyncratic way. It started with Matt scanning this one page, putting it on a MySpace. Someone clipped that one image out of that one page, colored it in, started using that as a reaction image, basically to, to put in, that was used in message boards online all manner of message boards, whether it was like bodybuilding forums or mushroom message boards. It was just this image of this stone cracked out frog saying, feels good, man. And then people started to remix and redraw Pepe. And that's one of the th reasons why Pepe did become so successful. He's a really fun character to draw and redraw and remix. And so people's turned him from the feels good man frog into the feels sad man frog, the feels bad man frog. And he became basically an early internet emoji. And so Pepe became the de facto face of anonymous 4chan users, first as a reaction image and then as this remixable character. He became the mascot of the anonymous internet user. And, and he became um, basically this way that people could express their um, emotions online. And in the film, we realized that that was a really powerful and flexible narrative tool. The quote-unquote sad frog became the most popular image for displaying sadness. There were other images that would describe that feeling. That sad frog, you knew what it was about. Nothing else needed to be said there. So in the film, you see as Pepe as Pepe moves from this like pretty fun-loving, good-natured, feels good man frog into ultimately Donald Trump, and then ultimately like um, you know white supremacist propaganda. So, but we sort of trace as Pepe moves from relative innocence to like irrational anger, 
And as this was happening, the politics of aggrievement in America were also beginning to take off. And Pepe just became like a real emblem for this irrational anger that a huge portion of America was feeling for a variety of reasons. And these, these sort of feelings were fomenting on these message boards. For the alt-right, Pepe allows them to pretend that they're kidding. They're not kidding. What they want is for you to be both scared by the threat and be mocked for being scared in the first place. This sort of anger was being stoked, and we didn't realize it at the time, but now we realize that was a coalition that was forming. Yeah. You know, 4chan is such a big part of this, and, you know, like you say, such a big part of where, you know, these sort of original feelings kind of fomented. And in the beginning of the movie, you come in with 4chan users like Mills and Pizza, you know, how did you reach out to them? How did you find, you know, the the people that you thought kind of best represented that that feeling and that part of the movement? Um, You know, when I first started the film, I knew that um, Matt was going to be the main character in the film, but I realized that I, I wanted the voices from 4chan to be part of our story because I felt like there'd been a number of movies made about the internet and it would just kind of like cut to a journalistic talking head sort of explaining to you what 4chan is and then moving on. Mm-hmm. But I think for people to really understand the Pepe phenomenon, they needed to understand what Pepe meant to people. They needed to understand that this character had a sort of real bond with the people who were using um, him as a meme. And so, um, you know, I I found Mills through um, surfing 4chan, and Mills is a a meme on 4chan himself. Mm. You see Mills' picture on 4chan. And... In some ways, it's very it's looked down upon to have your picture on 4chan. 4chan is meant to be an anonymous place. Mm-hmm. So Mills had already kind of broken 4chan Omerta by making himself a public person. And then I discovered that there was like an archive of of some of his videos, and there was a there was a video that was just labeled with um, a date. Mm-hmm. And I happened to click on that one, and it's a video of Mills laying in bed, and he holds his phone up um, before he's like going to bed, and he's simply saying into his phone, "What does Pepe mean to me?" What does Pepe mean to me? What does he mean to me? He's a frog. He's a sad frog. And I honestly just had a feeling like, oh, he's going to be in the movie. He has this yeah. connection to Pepe. And um, so we started talking on Skype. And um, then eventually he allowed us to film an interview with him and then invite us into his home. Mills is representative of, of a couple things. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that find themselves on 4chan feel like the world just isn't made for them. They feel mm-hmm. like outsiders and they they feel as though they are doomed to be outsiders. And there's a real sense of like anger and resentment about that and a real sense of entitlement. And were there any sort of hurdles to getting them to open up and want to talk to you on camera? Once we were with Mills, the issue was not really gaining trust. It was so as so much as it was getting him to speak authentically about things. Mills is has an encyclopedic knowledge of internet history, which was incredibly useful for us mm. because there's a part in the film where we explain uh, the kind of reaction from 4chan users who felt like with the birth of, of social media and all these new, what they call normies, entering the fold of internet culture, the that those people started using Pepe as their own and that that was just sort of absolutely uh, enraging to this group of people. So Mills's description of that event was, was really profound for me in a way that I'd never really understood it. 
there'd be somebody who'd be coming in from Instagram, sort of out themselves as maybe a sex haver or a woman, a neurotypical, socially well-adjusted person. Once you kind of get that seed planted in the head of like, you know, the popular kids and all look at look look how they're living, and look at you, you know, you're this you're this slug. All you normies have been bullying us our whole lives. I'll never be one of you disgusting normies. It seemed to me like invasion. You had people that would come on and say, why are all you virgin losers here? You know, where's the Pepe pictures at? Where are they at? Not that I like empathize so much, but that just understanding the way he described it, it was almost like a punk rock response to like your favorite band being co-opted by by like pop radio or something like that, feeling like a, a loss of that, and then responding by by basically uh, Nazifying Pepe and making him so grotesque that no one could touch him. Like I'd never really heard it explained so well than Mills, but then at the same time with Mills, because he comes from like a kind of trolling culture, you just never know what side of him you're getting. And it's like, it's confounding because there are moments where you see Mills hanging out with his family and you see this kind of glimmer of of a shell of a person <laughs> and you're like, you want to like coax that out of him. But then, you know, he got, he gets, he, he dives right back into the internet uh, uh, culture and it just, yeah. it seems He's inescapable. A- yeah. yeah, he's a product of the attention economy that's created on 4chan. And it's an extension, it's an extension economy that really only values edginess, mm. you know? And um, that's a really hard thing for people to kind of grow out of. It, it creates this um, real kind of like self-loathing that some mm. people can just choose to sit within. It becomes per, um, paralyzing for some people. Yeah, and I think if you balance that sort of against the sort of intense earnestness of somebody like Matt Fury who, you know, just sort of like wants to, like you said, hang out with his friends and make comics and do all those sorts of things. You know, it, I think it really in the film illustrates that open gap between two different sort of understandings of reality and understandings of what is happening in discourse in a way. Mm-hmm. In the wake of the election day and, you know, the aftermath, it's been very revealing to see what's going on on both on 4chan, on Twitter, uh, just in the way that this group of irony-pilled people are dealing with these kinds of emotions, it's actually there's a bit of Schadenfreude just observing it. I, but it's like it's funny to see them having to wrestle with loss, right? Like that 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 there's <laughs> there's a moment at which every troll has to um, you know confront their actual emotions because of course you can't run away from pain and <laughs> eventually you're going to get let down. But also what you were talking about, the, the like we also thought that that was a really wonderful sort of um, art, artistic um, way of us to approach the story as well, where we have Matt and he's like the analog world. It's colored pencils. Um, it, it's, it's a world that sounds and feels much different than the digital space that we create in the other sections of the film. And so I think when you're watching the film, it's those moments that feel like a sense of relief or release or grounding that I think ultimately keeps a film about the internet actually um, being something that's really just more about like human emotion.
Just to transition a little bit to another interesting character in the film, let's talk about John Michael Greer. There's this great moment in the movie where all of a sudden you see this man with a long wizard beard in a spooky library using the force or something else to start pulling books off shelves. You know, who is John Michael Greer and how did you find him? Yeah, uh, John Michael Greer is uh, um, an occultist, a former archdruid, but he is also <laughs> an incredible thinker and uh, intellectual and um you know, he introduces the concept of meme magic in our film, which is something that we had been, you know, talking about since the day we'd started filming, but had never really figured out the right way to discuss it. Well, what is meme magic? Like, how does it work? You know, like, I imagine like gifts casting spells, but I know that that's not actually what it is. <laughs> well, um, the way that John personally defines magic for himself is he talks about magic as being the politics of the unheard. And he mm. goes back in a lot of his writing and he talks about how um, people often in the past who were living in a society where they felt like they had no control over the society they were living in, they had no political agency, they weren't able to like vote or have a place of power, often would create magic ritual in a hope that they could like change their set of circumstances. And so mm. um, that's the way he sort of thinks about magic. And so he uses that as a lens to kind of view all of, you know, the last... 4,000 years of culture. Um, in terms of 4chan, though, people would talk about meme magic on 4chan. And, mm. you know, everything on 4chan is a joke, but it's also a place where people spend 8 to 12 hours a day on the message board. It's a place mm. that does really kind of create its own particular community and groupthink. There's this moment in which they're creating memes for for weeks and weeks and weeks, me, trying to meme into reality the idea that that Hillary Clinton will become sick and decrepit and have to drop out of the race, and then September eleventh, twenty sixteen, she has that moment where she like stumbles on the way into the van, mm -hmm. and just like any of these kinds of moments where the joke becomes real is just like uh, you know celebration day on four chan. There's a thing that people talk about in occult circles called the TSW moment. At TSW, the polite version is this stuff works. The chants went through their TSW moment. Hillary Clinton collapsed and had to be hauled into the SUV by other people. I honestly think at that point, if Donald Trump had asked the habitués of the chants to walk into the ocean, they would have done it. You know, this is the wonder, the wonderful aspect of uh, making a documentary is just the accidental nature of what you end up capturing. Um, this person reached out to me and he had recommended that we check out John Michael Greer's work and like I passed it along to Arthur and we started reading his work and listening to his podcast and talking about in a really uh, serious and intellectual way, the power of magic and like the relationship between magic and democracy and giving power to the voiceless. And he also happened to be writing a lot about meme magic and Pepe. And um, yeah. Uh, and so then we reached out to him and he was delighted to speak with us. And we had initially planned on interviewing him in the morning and had like a full day scheduled. And then Arthur, <laughs> Arthur reached out to him. I was like, all right, so we've got, we've got the library book for 10 AM. And he's like, oh no, we, uh, I am a nocturnal thinker and I don't wake <laughs> up until like four or five in the afternoon. So anyway, we moved it to the evening and it turned out to be like a very spectacular, beautiful um, event that 
uh, within like two minutes of speaking with him, I was just covered in goosebumps and felt like we'd, we finally unlocked not just the way to speak about meme magic, but like unlock the, the wondrous nature of this story in like a truly creative and interesting way. And I don't know, it was really rewarding to have an occultist actually explain the story better than anyone else possibly could have. A meme can become the anchor, the seed, if you will, around which a group of like-minded people can gather and toward which they can focus their energy. That's a basic tool of meme magic. The way that magic was used on the chans was they focused on building up a series of hypersigils, of images like Pepe the Frog, and piled into those images all of their hopes and all of their energy, their emotional focus of seeing Donald Trump in the White House. Um, well, one of the other key characters in the film is Matt Brainerd, who was one of Trump's strategists during the 2016 campaign and kind of really tapped into that online crowd that was turning Trump at the time into sort of a, you know, a symbol of the movement. Um, you know, why was it important for you to talk to him in the film and why was it important to have sort of his voice, you know, as part of this larger narrative? Um, we had um, we had already kind of completed a, a rough edit of the film, and we realized that we needed to really hear kind of from a voice uh, that was specifically from the Trump camp. Mm. Um, and he makes an important point in the film where he really talks about how memes have served to democratize propaganda and about how one of the reasons Trump's base is so um, committed to him um, in the face of all of these other sort of um, lies and accusations and corruptions um, is because they really feel like um, they're part of his movement. And one of the ways they feel part of this movement is by making memes. The inside terminology for this was sort of the great meme war. It gave people who had never really been involved in politics before a way in. The best memes that you see, the most effective ones, are just some person who has no power at all. They have no influence, they have no money, they have no connections, but if they can make one good meme, then it can take off and go viral. It's like a whole new way of doing grassroots that's not, totally. you know, handing out flyers, but yeah. it's just churning out images on message boards. But it is a, it is something that Matt Brainerd uh, really brought to our attention in a way that I, at least I hadn't been thinking about before that. But just the idea that, yeah, that m memes were an incredible way to democratize politics in a way that had never really existed before. So that you as a constituent and your relationship to the person you're voting for, like, that that relationship suddenly gets collapsed the minute that you create a piece of propaganda or in the form of a meme that gets retweeted by the president, all of a sudden you're like in the front row, right? You're part, yeah. you're participating directly. You're not just giving money to a candidate. You're actually participating in the coalition building and in a political situation that is, you know, the current Republican party where it seems as though there's not really a, definitive political platform. There's not really a set of ideas. There's not an argument being made about like, how are we going to make uh, the material conditions of American lives better through our ideas versus Democrats? It's really, it's really something that exists much more on an emotional level, right? And so memes become a really uh, potent way to basically form a collective around a, an emotion rather than a set of ideas. And memes also allow you to game the system. Like if you are someone who is looking to spread hate 
online. Mm-hmm. Um, memes allow you to obfuscate your message very easily. It gives you plausible deniability. Um, yeah. If you post um, a racist or fucked up version of Pepe, you can always just say that you were joking and then you can step away from that um, intent and then also like laugh at the person that was perhaps offended by it. Oh yeah. No, I mean, Donald Trump literally had like meme creators to the White House and to his golf club in Doral uh, in Miami. He had two different events where he, he quite literally brought these internet propagandists and celebrated them, right? So there is this recognition that there is an amount of chaos that they produce that he finds not just delightful, but actually very um, necessary in coalition building. And yeah, that, that was really, their intention. That was totally their intention. I mean, it's also important to point out that when, when Trump retweeted the image of himself as Pepe, um, that was two weeks after Pepe had sort of broken into the mainstream news cycle. And Pepe had broken into the mainstream news cycle after a school shooting at the Umqua Community College in Oregon. And the, the shooter supposedly posted a message on 4chan that featured an image of Pepe holding a gun. Mm-hmm. and saying what he was going to do the next day. Um, and that was reported fairly widely in the media. Then two weeks later, Donald Trump retweets an image of himself as Pepe. And this was the second time that all of a sudden Pepe was being reported on by the mainstream media. And I think in an, in conventional political thinking, you would have assumed that would have been the end of someone's um, political candidacy. <laughs> that would have been something that would have been a terrible decision. You have a major candidate retweeting an image that was used by a mass shooter just two weeks before, but instead it was something that um, people just kind of like overlooked very quickly. Well, so next to all these characters, you have Matt, who's always wrestling with how much to engage with how Pepe is being adopted by 4chan and by the internet at large. But it doesn't seem like he's motivated to do something about it until Pepe is on a hate symbols list, you know, until the Anti-Defamation League is putting Pepe up there as a hate symbol. And then it feels like all of a sudden he's in a legal fight with Alex Jones and he's trying to get Pepe off of this list. He's in the position where he can win small victories, but he can't fully win Pepe back, right. you know. So I'm kind of wondering how you sort of wanted to represent that in the film and kind of make him a character who is trying to figure out what to do about all this stuff even after it spun a little bit out of his control. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to understand that Matt sort of sits alone in the pantheon of weird internet culture in the sense that there's not really any other roadmap by any other person's experience on how to deal with something like this. Matt is sort of on his own, charting his own territory in terms of like uh, what he's had to go through. So in the early days, yeah, Matt was curiously amused by Pepe becoming this really popular meme because at that point it really was pretty innocent. Um, And then as things started to escalate around the election, you know, you have to understand that he's just a single artist, right? Like Pepe isn't owned by a larger company like Nickelodeon or Disney. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the, the tsunami tidal wave of just the entire internet using Pepe in all these different ways, it wasn't really a way for him to really respond in any concise or constructive way. Like what do you, you can't really like ask people one by one on Twitter to stop using Pepe, right? right. It's not, it's not feasible, but this, the, this sort of inflection point happened really around the election and, and, and the moment where the more opportunist side of the, of the trolling, right? The people like mm-hmm. Alex Jones or the people like Richard Spencer who started to actively use Pepe for their own gains, for their own mm-hmm. monetary gains and their own cultural gains, that they finally gave him the opportunity to actually um, 
take action. And really that action was only possible because of uh, a law firm who decided to take on his case pro bono. Because again, he's just like, he's an artist who can't, could never afford to defend his copyright in the way that was required. But the thing that also really just like made Matt the most angry was um, a, a, someone had self-published um, a kid's book that featured Pepe. It's called Pepe and Pede. And it's a, it's a MAGA-centric kind of kid's book. And it's racist. There's an alligator that, that in it that's like a racist version of Obama. Mm-hmm. And Matt felt like that in particular, like he, Matt felt that propaganda aimed at four and five-year-olds Mm-hmm. was like particularly um, um, heartbreaking and grotesque for him. When Matt found out that there was a Islamophobic racist children's book starring Pepe coming out on Amazon, he was so upset. And that's when he kind of freaked out about it. Come on. It was like the last straw. Oh, fuck. It's lady. It's like, it's like hell, man. Like, if if you want to if you want to escape hell, you can't ignore it. You almost have to go to the center of it. You know, Matt's a friend of mine. He's someone who I care about, and um, I actually think that that's like a strength in the film. I think this movie is about connection, and I think like if you can sense that the filmmakers um, really care about Matt and also care about Pepe as well, that that's actually kind of a, a good thing and an affirming thing within the film. Um, we wanted it to sort of be a reconfirmation of like reality. And um, so, you know, I, I think some of our relationship to Matt is born out of like that that feeling that we had to make this film feel like an emotionally relevant piece of art for people. Well, one of the things, you know, the, the film sort of ends on this note of looking at the Hong Kong protests, you know, from about a year or so ago and how Pepe in that case had become a, a symbol of hope for the for the protesters. You know, but I wonder, do you think it's possible to ever fully redeem Pepe? Yeah, I mean, the film itself was an effort to do that, right? The reason Pepe was able to be uh, co-opted was in part because no one really understood where he came from. Like I mm-hmm. said earlier, like Pepe is the creation of a single artist, a single working artist. And so in that vacuum, the hive mind of the internet was able to create its own narrative for Pepe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, our film was trying, especially the animations, the component of it, that wanting to bring Pepe and the Boys Club characters to life was an attempt to canonize Pepe and just basically stake a flag in the ground and say, this is this is Pepe Cannon. This is where he came from. This is the creator. And this is what you now have to contend with. Like, this is mm-hmm. the reality, right? So that hopefully people moving forward, when they see a unsavory version of Pepe online, they understand that as a derivation and not who Pepe yeah, really is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to director Arthur Jones and writer-producer Giorgio Angelini, uh, the filmmakers behind Feels Good Man. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you, Angela. Yeah, it was a great conversation. This week, we're introducing a new segment to close the show. If you're a subscriber to Wired Magazine, you're probably already familiar with the six-word sci-fi stories we feature on the back page. Every month, we ask for contributions for sci-fi stories told in only six words that fit a certain theme. Today on the podcast, you'll hear an audio version of some of our favorites. Here's our producer, Ben Montoya. 
This piece of six-word sci-fi comes from Chalkib S. The theme is An Apocalypse with a Happy Ending. Baby's voice rose from the cave. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Today's episode of Get Wired was hosted by me, Angela Watercutter. You can follow me on Twitter at Waterslicer. Thanks to Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini for coming on the show. You can follow them on Instagram at Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini. This episode was produced by Ben Montoya with production help from Anna Stitt, Mickey Capper, and Asia Simpson. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannes Brown. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Nina Gainsler-Debs, Sarah Fallon, and Megan Greenwell edited this episode. Scott Rosenfield is Wired's site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can subscribe to Wired at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And you can subscribe to the podcast newsletter from Wired at wired.com slash podcast email. Thanks again for listening.